on this episode of Rebel Spirit Radio. I mean, as as we grow, when we're young, you know, we feel timid or anxiety or shyness or all these sorts of things and just can be afraid to just put ourselves out there, you know, and just let people sort of see the real, real us, as it were, yeah. and just be ourselves. But I mean, that's, that's really the only way you can live. If we, if we look at nature, if we look at the broader scope of life, I mean, we, I think what we often like so much about nature is we, we look out, trees are just being trees, animals are just being animals doing their thing, the squirrels are just being squirrels, they're, you know, they they don't have any of that sort of self-consciousness or shyness or, or, you know, artifice or any of these sorts of things, they're just being themselves. And I think that's, it's probably something we like a lot about pets, too, is that they're just there being themselves and, you know, totally accepting, totally comfortable. And if we can, you know, if we can kind of tap into that, I it just makes life so much more enjoyable and, and easier and more flowing, all those good things. Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, I am joined by author and Taoist priest Gregory Ripley to discuss his latest book, The Hundred Remedies of the Tao, Spiritual Wisdom for Interesting Times. In addition to exploring what is meant by the Tao, Gregory discusses the importance of self-examination, expanding our circle of compassion, embracing life and living, and the inherent goodness in humanity and nature. Also, please be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to or view podcasts. Your support is truly appreciated. Gregory Ripley is a Taoist priest in the 22nd generation of the Tuanzhen Longmen tradition, as well as a nature and forest therapy guide. He holds a bachelor's degree in Asian studies from the University of Tennessee and a master's degree in acupuncture from Northwestern Health Sciences University. He is the author of Tao of Sustainability and Voice of the Elders. He joins me today to discuss his latest book, The Hundred Remedies of the Tao. Gregory, welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Great. Thanks so much for having me, Nick. Well, I am very much looking forward to this conversation. I mentioned very briefly that there are a lot of points of comparison to what I did in my doctoral dissertation, because the focus was on virtue for me. And it was environmental virtue, uh, environmental mm -hmm. ethics. So I'm really looking forward to this. And the first question I have, I have been thinking about this because I always, it's the instructor in me. I always want my audience to know what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And the root of your work is in Taoism. Mm -hmm. And I was going to ask you, you know, well, Gregory, what is the Tao? But I also know that first line from the Tao Te Ching. And in my brain, I thought, oh, that would be hysterical to say, Gregory, what is the Tao? And then just have nothing but silence for like an hour and then say, okay, well, thank you for joining me today, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. We can't do that. That would not be a good podcast. <laughs> no, no. 
Yeah, it's 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 a lot of fun. It's yeah. So there's a lot we can say about Taoism, of course, mm-hmm. and all the ways that people have tried to point to the Tao without being able to say much about the Tao itself. Yeah, we can talk, we can we can approximate, we can point towards the Tao. We can say things like the totality of existence and non-existence, the the whole universe as we know it or as much as we can know, all those kinds of things to point towards the Tao. But yeah, the Tao is really a placeholder. It's it's like the the all that we can't speak of and can't really say anything about and so we call it Tao. yeah 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 the Tao that can be said is not the true Tao. so thank you for that and i imagine that as we go we'll be exploring the Tao a little bit further but can you say something about Taoism? Yeah, so i guess i'll start by saying in so in ancient china you had lots of sort of we, we've tended to look at it as competing philosophies in ancient China, and I'm not sure if it's the best way to put it unless we also, you know, with the caveat that how we look at ancient Greek philosophy is not always very accurate either as far as if we consider philosophers people who had a way of life that they were promoting and teaching people how to live according to a certain way of life and way of being, then that works, I think, for ancient Chinese philosophy as well, that it wasn't just a purely intellectual exercise. We tend to think of philosophy now as like a major in, in school, and you go and you study all these ancient writings and learn, you know, different ways of thinking, and 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 it's wonderful, but there seems to be a little bit of a disconnect between the teachings and the writings and the implementation of them or, you know, putting them into practice in your own life with things like stoicism, you know, having a nice revival and being a much more sort of obviously practical philosophy. I think that's changing a bit and, and we may be kind of coming full circle a little bit, but so ancient Chinese philosophy, if we want to, if we want to call it that more in common with Buddhism and Hinduism and other systems where there are philosophical teachings for sure, but it's part of a, a way of being, a way of living. We could say an art, you know, the art of living, that kind of idea. And so Taoism <clears throat> really probably predated anything we can say about its origins. The earliest writings that we kind of identify as Taoists is usually, you know, the Tao Te Ching is kind of what everybody knows. And you know, we, we've traditionally attributed it to a single author. It's probably more likely a collection of sayings or teachings or probably oral teachings from some lineages passed down, assembled together, edited together into a coherent sort of text. And so from, I, I would consider those early teachings to be Taoist because they, they have the same worldview that kind of has continued on through the tradition ever since. You know, scholars like to argue about everything, so they would be, oh, no, it's proto-Daoist or pre-Daoist or something like that. But to me, it's like, it's the same roots, it's the same tree, it's the same branches, it's 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 all good. I, I see a continuity there, so I'm happy to just call it Taoist. Um, but uh, so it usually attributed to Lao Tzu as the founder 
so to speak, founder of Taoism, author of the Tao Te Ching. And so it's, you know, it's easiest to just, if you're talking about the Tao Te Ching, to just talk about Lao Tzu instead of mysterious elders who, who wrote what, who knows. But so in practice, it's easiest to just talk about the Tao Te Ching with a single author and think of him as the founder. And then, so basically people who considered those teachings as practical and or sacred and or something worth following, you know, built traditions around that. And it's been going strong ever since, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) But basically it's about, you know, that a lot of the schools of thought and different philosophies back then talked about Tao as a, a way or their various Tao's, their various ways of living. And I think for the Taoists, it was more like we want to be in touch with the way of the universe, like the the way of the ways, you know, the way of nature, the way that everything works at the kind of at the highest or deepest level. And so I think that's where they kind of coalesced around, okay, that that name works for us. You know, we're the people who follow the Tao, not a, a Tao. Okay. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you for that. It's um, uh, religion. The categories are always weird because we love our categories and I'm always hesitant with any ism, you know, Buddhism, Hinduism, and Taoism. And part of these ideas that we like to do in, in terms of placing things in categories is placing things as, oh, well, this is philosophy and this is religion. Uh-huh. And, you know, Buddhism is always seen as the problem child in the room, you know, which is it? But I think that also applies to Taoism as well, that it, and we shouldn't be thinking in terms of, well, is it this or that, but that it's both. Yeah, I, I, I think so. And, that, you know, um, Buddhism has been in China so long that they've, of course, Buddhism and Taoism had, have had a a long relationship um, and a long kind of dialogue with each other um, in a lot of ways influenced each other a lot. Um, and it's, it's very similar. Yeah. Like you're saying, and in, in, even with Hinduism too, it's like um, with, you know, Advaita Vedanta and, and Shankara and, and all these people and all these, you know, there, there was a strong dialogue with Buddhism as well. And so Hinduism and Buddhism really influenced each other a lot. Yeah. And so I think we, we, we've taken, you know, academic categories that make sense in a school, like, oh, we're doing philosophy classes, we're doing religious studies classes. And then we try to kind of put them on reality and reality is of course, much grayer and messier and and more complicated uh, than those simple categories. Yeah. So you know, I, I look at it in the same way that you could talk about Christian philosophy, or you could say, you know, within Christianity as a whole, as an umbrella, there's, you know, there's ethics, there's philosophy, there's, there's these different aspects to it, right? And so you, you can, you, I, I think it's, if you look at Taoism or any tradition in a similar way, then, then it, it helps to be like, oh, of course, there are philosophical teachings within Taoism. But that's not to say it's, just a philosophy or it's just a religion or yeah i think as as the world gets more integrated and we we you know come across more different ways of doing things and interpreting things we have to broaden our definitions and categories and 
so that they can account for the variety of experience that's out there. Yeah. 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 Well, one of the things that appeals to me because I, you know, I have always really appreciated Taoism and I would like to ask you what led to your interest in it, but I have something I want to say also about this um, construction of categories. One of the things that appeals to me about Taoism and going back to like the ancient Greeks, you know, especially like the pre-Socratics is that there is this question of how to live. And there does seem to be a spiritual aspect to it. And I think modern philosophy has just kind of rejected the uh-huh. spirit aspect. And that definitely needs to be brought back in. And I think that's why there's this... Uh, current interest in things like stoicism because mm-hmm. it does combine both it kind of blends that cat those categories so anyway what led to your interest in Taoism? yeah let's see you know i think there were probably things <coughs> sorry i've got a little yeah. a little hitch here I think there were probably things in my childhood that I didn't even maybe not pay much attention to at the time or realize any sort of connection that might have been, you know, little hints of, you know, I, when I was in elementary school, I lived in the Bay Area in California and used to love to go into Chinatown, Mm. actually. And just, you know, I don't know something about the sights and sounds and and all of it appealed to me. I don't think I made much of a connection at that time with it, but it was really later into college when, you know, I, I was one of those kids who went to college just because you're supposed to go to college kind of thing. Like no idea what I would major in, no, no earthly idea what I was doing with myself. And so I, I think I went for a year, maybe a year and a half, and then took uh, a year or two off and just was like hiking and camping and rock climbing a lot and stuff like that. And, and just reading kind of voraciously when I wasn't working, I was reading or, or hiking, you know, and one of my old friends had, had started to dive into Eastern philosophy and, and those kind of books more. And so I was just like, kind of like, okay, great. You know, what's this stuff? This looks interesting. Started reading all of that too, you know? So I remember a few early books that kind of sent me in that direction were probably things like, you know, Shunru Suzuki's Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. I remember that being an early kind of one that had a had a big impact. Let's see, there was a lot of the Chogim Trungpa books, you know, there was Shambhala and you know, just what I started reading stuff like that. And then and then of course the Tao Te Ching as well. And then Anything that was in the local library that I could find, you know, that was along those lines, I just was kind of reading everything kind of voraciously, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh books and and what have you. And that kind of gave me my direction for, oh, okay, if I'm going to go back to college, I kind of was, I was back in Idaho at the time where I'd gone to high school and it's like, well, I can go here or I can go to Tennessee. My parents had, had moved to Tennessee and Tennessee had this good Asian studies programs, religious studies, a a lot of stuff that was more appealing. And so that was kind of the direction I headed into. I I think there was another book, Bill Porter's, yeah, Red Pine, his Zen teachings of Bodhidharma was one I remember that was a bilingual edition. So it had the Chinese and the, the translation. And so 
I think that was one of those two where I was like, ooh, I can go study Chinese. And, you know, there was something about Chinese characters that kind of just appealed to me. And yeah, so that's that's what I did. I went back to school and did Asian studies and, you know, took as many religious studies classes as I could along the way as well. And yeah, it was a, it was a good program that it was like an interdisciplinary studies type program. So you'd take history classes, philosophy classes, religious studies, language, you know, any, anything to do with your area of concentration. So yeah, yeah that's, good. that's one of the beauties of like religious studies is that it is interdisciplinary that you're all mm-hmm. over the place, you know? So I, yeah, I always say, you know, I'm a generalist because of it. Yeah. And uh, yes, yeah, so I, I, I can relate very much. So let's kind of turn to the book a little bit. So the sure. hundred remedies of the Tao. And this is mostly a commentary on mm-hmm. a sixth century Taoist text called the statutes of the hundred remedies. Mm-hmm. And I just want to say, I really enjoyed the book very, very much. And one of the things though, is that I believe you mentioned very early on in the book that it's not a book necessarily that should be read through quickly, but to kind of be savored and reflected on. Unfortunately, given the podcast, I have to read through really quickly, <laughs> uh, but I, 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 I wish that I had the opportunity to kind of let it set a little bit. Mm-hmm. But my first question is this, the hundred remedies of the Tao remedies for what? So, yeah, I liked the idea of remedies. I, I, I always liked the text because of how it's presented. So basically, it's like a, a it's a precepts text, right? And we'd normally think of it as like an ethical teaching or a set of rules. You know, usually we think of religious precepts as like thou shalt not kind of thing. And in this case, it's presented as remedies. So like spiritual remedies in the sense of you'll have problems in life, you'll have situations you encounter, and these are remedies to those problems or situations that will come up. And I just thought it was very approachable that way for people who, especially, you know, people who may have grown up and left their own traditions they grew up with and are kind of turned off by rules and you you must do this and that and they're not being necessarily any explanation or any good reason behind why you should do these things or whatever and I just thought it was very approachable that way for a lot of people and um and very practical again you know kind of similar to stoicism or, or things like that just very practical advice for for living yeah yeah well you know it's like I've said, it mirrors a lot of the work that I've done. And mm-hmm. so I'll, I'll kind of share this in a sense. I think it's really important at this moment. And I think you're right that, you know, it's a moral book without moralizing, mm-hmm. um, but it, it's focused on virtues, mm-hmm. you know, these like, however we want to define virtue. How do you define virtue? Let me ask you that. Or how does the text define virtue? How does the text? Well, in, in Taoism in, in general, I, I would say, and it holds it holds true for the text as well, that in Taoism in general, there's kind of two sides to it. One is a, a moral or ethical sort of virtue. And the other side of it is almost an energetic 
you know, sometimes people translate the Tao Te Ching as like the way and its power or the way and its virtue, but there, and it's really two sides of a coin there to where, you know, even in terms of sometimes people know about internal alchemy and practices like that in Taoism, that's more like energetic or considered kind of like an energetic practice. But even there, all of the texts will talk about virtue as being kind of the foundation of it, right? So that the idea is that you can't really have one without the other. Like you can't make yourself some powerfully energetic being that's terrible and awful or whatever or in theory at least that's the way it's presented um and we might have a parallel with i mean there there might be a bit of a parallel with um modern mindfulness practices Mm -hmm. right where traditionally mindfulness and meditation is is grounded in you know uh ideas like bodhicitta in buddhism right compassion being your reason for doing it in taoism compassion is there in the Tao Te Ching as well as one of uh lao tzu's three treasures like the original three treasures of taoism compassion frugality and humility and so you have that ethical or moral grounding and if you just practice mindfulness in kind of a like a corporatized sort of a way without any of that, sure, you'll you'll probably gain concentration and focus and all these things, but, you know, it won't be grounded in any sort of ethical teachings anymore or anything. And so it, you could just become more productive at doing destructive, terrible things, right? Or something like that. So it could be you know, we we don't want it to become kind of a sociopathic sort of a thing. Every once in a while, you'll see something. There was something that I just saw some clip on the internet a, a few weeks ago about, it was like some Israeli Zen master who was telling people about, you know, how to be better soldiers or something. And it, it was very, it was very surreal and strange. And it reminded me of, of course, during World War II, you had some Zen people who were very nationalistic and caught up in kind of that fervor and maybe a similar sort of a thing going on, right? Where when your world is too small and too limited and too divided and your circle of compassion only extends to, you know, your family, your neighborhood, your tribe, whatever, that it, there's a, there's a disconnect there. You know, we're hoping to expand our circle of compassion to the whole world i think versus you know getting into kind of tribal tribalism but anyway a little off track there (laughs) getting back to virtue but i guess with virtue the idea is yeah compassion and and living the best (coughs) life we can we could also look at as expressing the Tao through ourselves or you know how how do we embody the Tao and virtue would be a reflection of trying to embody the Tao, I, I suppose. Yeah. 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 Good. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> the, well, and I know it's, it's a tricky question to ask and there are a number of reasons why I kind of wanted to ask this question. You know, one is you noted that there is this common conception of Taoism is just like going with the flow. 
Mm -hmm. right? That, you know, the dude is the embodiment, you know, that's just your opinion, man. <laughs> just kind of going with the flow, but there's more to it than that. And where I'm coming from is I am constantly doing this, not necessarily with the Stoics, although that is relevant as well, but for me, it's Aristotle. Mm -hmm. And one of the, because there is this emphasis on virtue in the Western philosophical tradition, it all kind of goes back to Aristotle. And for him, you know, the question is, well, why be virtuous? And virtues for him are these like dispositions or character traits, right? And then the answer is, well, you need to be virtuous to be happy. And the Greek word was euda eudaimonia. Mm-hmm. And that gets translated now to flourishing, mm -hmm. that you have to be virtuous to have a flourishing life. But I always take it, look at the, the actual roots of eudaimonia, which means a good daimon, a good spirit. Mm -hmm. And that's where I see a connection that the in Taoism is that you want to inhabit these virtues, embody these virtues, not just to be in alignment with the Tao. I mean, that yes, that's important, but it gives you that good spiritedness, that good way of being. The one thing that's missing in Aristotle is meditation. Mm. There's no meditative practices. And so when I read your book, I kept thinking, you know, man, if only those Greeks had meditation, this could have been a vastly different world, <laughs> vastly different world. But what I am trying to lead us into is for Aristotle, there is this connection between the individual and the community. Mm -hmm. And this is what I did my doctoral work on was that the idea of a republic mm -hmm. get largely from Aristotle. And for Aristotle, you know, his ethical work, the Nicomachean ethics, the very ending is the beginning of his work on politics. Mm. And Aristotle recognized that for a republic to survive, the citizens and the politicians have to be people of virtue. Yeah. And I knew that our system of government, you know, democratic republic, that idea was core at the beginning. And what I was trying to do, and I mentioned this because you indirectly kind of talk about this in the book. So I apologize for being so long-winded, but it is relevant to the book and what you're doing. Not a problem. But I was so upset and shocked by everything I was saying. And initially it was the not addressing things like climate change. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, you know, hey, Character used to be a part of our political language and rhetoric. And I thought, aha, I'm going to beat these people at their own game. I'm going to demonstrate that there's this tradition of virtue in the American political system and the American religious system, and then connect those two environmental issues and show, haha, mm -hmm. see, if you do this, we can save the Republic and we can save nature. But then it seems like the whole concept of virtue got jettisoned, that no one cared. And I think that this is important for us as Americans to still be virtuous. And this is where I see your work being incredibly important. But also, 
my understanding is the Tao Te Ching can be read as a political work. Yeah, for sure. For sure. It's, you know, one of the things I really like about Taoism is that it's, it can always be read at multiple levels. And I think, I think any of the, at least for me, it works this way that any, anything in there kind of always has to be thought of at multiple levels, whether it's things like internal alchemy or, you know, texts that can be read more politically. There's always all these debates about, was it a political text that's advice for rulers? Is it a meditation text? Is it is it this or that? And I don't think it ever has to be this or that, that it, it can always be all of those things. And that what rings true in there, part of why it rings so true is that it mo it works at all these different levels. And, and um, there, in Taoism, there's always this resonance between microcosm and macrocosm and what holds true within yourself and what holds true within a society or the world or, or <laughs> what have you. I'll try to keep my coughing to a minimum here. But yeah, for sure that, and like you said, yeah, it's, it seems we've, we've reached a stage in our politics where there's a lot of people who hold up the appearance of virtue in a way that's just really like, I'm checking the boxes that says I'm on your team. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I'm presenting the, the image you want to see. But behind that facade is just garbage, right? Or or yeah. whatever, or it's just, you know, naked power grabbing kind of stuff. And as opposed to, like you're saying, what is best for society? What is best for the earth? What is best for all of us? You know? <laughs> yeah. So it's 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 really and it's similar to the idea of for a democracy to work, having a a well educated voter right and we used to have civics classes and that kind of thing and people used to understand how the system worked at least and stuff and it seems like any more people don't even understand the way the system works even those within the system now a lot of them are like it's a badge of honor to not understand how it works mm -hmm. and be like oh, i'm just gonna rage against the system from within the system and and like all you're doing is gumming up the works and like making it work worse proving proving it doesn't work by not understanding how to make it work or something yeah it's 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 gotten very dysfunctional but then again when i'm i see current events <coughs> like this and a lot of times people get very fatalistic about it i think you know just look at history you know i mean <laughs> it's yeah. a, it's always been a mess it's always been complicated we've always had our cycles where things have gotten a bit better and it seems like you know a, a brief golden age or whatever and then things get dysfunctional again and and back and forth so yeah <laughs> yeah well yeah it's exactly what i was trying to get at was that in order for the system to work you know there is that connection between the inner and the outer in so many different ways and I, I, I want to look at some of these virtues and I'm looking at my notes here. So if you see me looking sure. down, I'm always looking at my notes. Well, let me ask this. If, 
it is to the benefit of the individual to embody and practice these virtues. Mm-hmm. And that's going to benefit the larger community. And it doesn't have to be just the political community, but mm-hmm. you know, the larger earth community, the common good. How do you get people to practice these virtues? Yeah. Well, I think on the most basic level, the easiest place to start and the almost the only place you can start is with the individual, with yourself, and within the smallest circle of, you know, your daily life, like who you're around, your family, your coworkers, your immediate community, you know, and then things ripple out from there. I think I mean, as much as I love activism and activists and things like that, and they're so vital and important, you know, they're constantly burning themselves out too, right? And so I think you need that balance of inner and outer work that, yes, you need to create change where necessary. We have societal ills that we have to address, that we have to deal with on an outer level on a societal level but we also need to kind of uproot those things within ourselves as well and so you know if we're always setting ourselves up and in an adversarial way with every issue in life then it everything becomes a fight and everything is a struggle and and you know one side will win maybe temporarily and maybe change things the way they want. But then I think then we're always having these backlashes, you know, we're always having unintended consequences because we we see things as a, a zero sum game, as a winner take all struggle, as opposed to, Hey, we're all in this together. We have to figure out how to make things work for everyone, especially now that, you know, the global community is is so much more interwoven and the world has gotten so much smaller in a sense because of, you know, the internet and modern trade and politics and everything else. You know, it used to be that it didn't matter what was happening on the other side of the globe because you had no contact with that society or whatever. And now it all matters, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that theme of interconnectedness is so important, you know, and there are a lot of really good suggestions in the book. So, for example, I think in what you were just saying, there's one chapter, it's a be curious, not judgmental. Mm -hmm. And I think that we are all guilty of being very judgmental and assuming that we know what someone else thinks and criticizing them. And this is something that I've done because you quote Marcus Aurelius, you know, great Stoics, that, and the quote was, whenever you are about to find fault with someone, ask yourself the following question. What fault of mine most closely resembles the one I'm about to criticize? Mm-hmm. And that's what I've tried to do with, let's say, some politicians that I find rather abhorrent. I will look at their vices, you know, so Mm -hmm. for example, I'm like, oh, well, that person's arrogant. 
And what I do mm. is I turn it back in on myself and say, well, how am I arrogant? You know, because it's the idea that, you know, you see the worst in others that you don't want to see in yourself. Yeah. And I value that because there is this key idea of self-examination and self-reflection mm -hmm. that you're constantly encouraging. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, we're, yeah, like you say, we're, we're much more apt to notice what we see wrong in the world around us right. and in other people. And the bottom line is that's like, again, you know, like with the Stoics, that's out of our control for the most part. Right. I mean, we can get together and we can work with other people to create change um, at, at larger levels and in society and stuff. But as individuals, for the most part, most of what I was, is in our control is is ourselves and how we live our lives and how we react to others and interact with others and think about things and all those things and so yeah every time something bothers you it's an opportunity to be like why does that bother me why why is that person acting that way and why is that striking a chord with me why is that affecting me so much you know mm -hmm. as opposed to just being like oh well yeah, that person is arrogant or whatever. Who cares, right? Like, why should it bother you? And you're not going to change them by addressing their arrogance directly, you know, and then it, it'll become confrontational again, most likely, and, and what have you. And so, yeah, you can, any interaction in life, you can, it, it becomes like a, a teachable moment, but teaching yourself like a, that, that self-examination to say hey what is what is going on that that I'm seeing what is it striking a chord in me you know how does that reflect on my own life or my own thoughts or my own ideas and how can I improve uh, my life and instead of that going with the flow idea it becomes a little bit more like how can I make my life more smoothly flowing it might be another way to flip it on its head a little bit that ideally you're going with the, the flow in the largest sense, but for you to experience that flow is not going to mean just like doing whatever you want, because if whatever you want is informed by all kinds of unexamined ideas and misperceptions and delusions and you know, stories that society has, has told you that you have just taken for granted or, you know, ideas you were raised with that you haven't thought about, you know, past traumas, all these sorts of things, right, that, that form us as we, as we grow. And so the idea of going with that flow doesn't make any sense, right? But the idea of going with your most sort of innate or original or natural flow that would be the flow of the Tao and the flow of the universe and things. If you can get back to that, then you, your smoothly flowing life will be in accord with that greater, greater flow, I suppose is one way to look at it. But yeah, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> we, yeah. we got a little a little off track there, but yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's the same thing. It's essentially it's saying that, you know, you want to do this to have a flourishing life because if you're stuck in self-delusion, dishonesty, and so on and so forth, yeah. you're never going to be happy. 
Yeah. You know? yeah. Uh, but th- that's kind of an ongoing question though, is how, how to get people to begin that process of self-examination. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? you know, because you talk about one of the chapters, I think it's called the two millimeters. And the Mm -hmm. question is how to guide those in delusion and error without setting ourselves up in a kind of adversarial position. And how do you do that? Yeah, that's a tricky one. Yeah. It's one of those things where, well, one thing one of my teachers used to do is, and I think this is the kind of the most productive approach is to ask a lot of questions as opposed to saying things or reacting to what people are saying. So especially if what they're saying seems like just ludicrous to you, you'd be like, well, why, why do you say that? Why do you think that, you know, what, what's, what do you mean? What's going on there? And, and try to dig into what's behind these things they're saying. And often, you know, often people are kind of just parroting things they hear and and they're just sort of saying things that have become like slogans or whatnot, you know? And when you can really kind of dig in a little bit and get behind some of that reactivity, what they really believe deep down is, is not really what they're parroting, you know, or what they're saying. And you can sometimes then I think help people shift a little bit behind that by getting behind that kind of, it's kind of armor, you know, it's kind of like verbal armor when people are just like, ah, and and, uh, just spouting things. And when you can kind of get under that a little bit, then you can start to shift a little bit. You're like, oh, well, tell me more about that. And they, and they, tell you what they think and then sometimes just by getting them to question what they are saying themselves they'll start to kind of see that what they're saying doesn't necessarily make any sense isn't really coherent in any way and is just yeah like a knee-jerk sort of slogan that they've heard and they they're repeating because they see themselves as on that team or whatever right when we fall into these political camps, especially, it's so easy to just, just kind of regurgitate talking points. And, you know, my guy says this, so I, I'm saying this, and I don't really believe it deep down. But I, you know, I don't want to be like those people, because I believe XYZ about them or whatever. And so I'm over here. And uh, yeah, when it, it always reminds me of like, you know, when they, <coughs> a lot of the polls they'll take about certain issues and it'll be like you know 80 percent of americans believe this and then when it's framed in more political terms where people start to think as democrats and republicans and stuff then it becomes this very 50 50 sort of thing or or even though 80 percent of people agree when you get to the politicians there's there's no movement even though the public agrees that things should be this way because things are not presented in that way it's presented as this or that and yeah I I I think it's you know you have to meet people where they are you have to figure out where people are you have to figure out what's led to them being where they are kind of get a little of that backstory and and background and kind of 
figure out a way to help them peel back some of their own layers. Because if you try to, you know, you can't peel them back, you can't rip them, <laughs> rip them off. Then it's like, then th those are fighting words, right? But yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, what you just said connects to something else that's in the book because it, we have to start with ourselves because whatever we want to do, you know, engaging in these dialogues with people, we have to start the dialogue with ourselves first to make sure that we're not just repeating talking points and whatnot. And mm -hmm. I think that you address this in another section about uh, not arguing about right and wrong and that we all have this unconscious need to be right. And the only thing I would say is that sometimes I have a conscious need. I'm quite well aware <laughs> that I want to be right. And it's really important though, to let that go. Yeah. I think when it's, when it's unconscious, I think it has to do with just a basic sense of, of security and a sense of, you know, wanting to, I mean, it's, yeah, it's kind of a safety or a security thing of like wanting to feel like you know what's going on and, and that you understand what, what is happening. And, and as opposed to just being like, oh my God, like what, what's happening? I don't know what's happening. So it's a basic kind of sense of security there. And of course, when it's more conscious, then it is maybe becomes a little bit more of a kind of an egotistical sort of a thing of like a feeling of wanting to sort of win or whatever, right? To get over on the other person, win the argument or or whatnot. But yeah, I, I, I think that's part of it is is a basic, you know, when we when we don't understand what's going on in the world or are going on around us, I think we get scared and we get insecure and we get worried and anxious and all these sorts of things. And especially, you know, when things like the pandemic or or crazy things happening in politics or wars or insurrections and all these sorts of things, you know, when the world gets very chaotic, we feel insecure, unsafe and threatened, you know, and, and just want to, sometimes I think we retreat into very simplistic ideas and slogans and things because it feels safe and secure. Like, okay, this is a very simple map and I get it. And so even if it doesn't correspond to reality, like I can get a, a handle on this right here. So that, and that's all I can do right now. And then hopefully you can be a little more comfortable. Maybe you can start to expand that and work on a, a map that's a little more, a little more closely related to, to reality. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the goal then seems to be to try to move beyond the individual aspects and the larger one would be the Tao itself. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's that idea of there's another one of the remedies that talks about faith in the Tao or the Shin Tao. And it's basically like a, a, a faith in the universe or a faith in life itself, or, you know, a, a feeling of security with life and that, life is okay things are okay the world is as it should be even if in the moment it seems terrible from your perspective and it very well may be you know you may be in a war zone you may be in a famine you may be any number of 
terrible things happening in your immediate vicinity, but the universe as a whole is sort of unfolding and in the only way it can. Yeah, it gets tricky when on an individual level, we can have terrible experiences and go through horrible things, but, you know, it ends up being something like man's search for meaning kind of a, kind of an idea, right? Yeah. So, but basically, yeah, just a, just a confidence or a faith in life itself that, you know, the earth is under your feet. It's there to support you. Everything that has contributed to your life, even existing is, is there and, and supporting you. Yeah. Yeah. It, one of the things that comes to mind, and thank you for mentioning Viktor Frankl there, because mm-hmm. actually that's what I was thinking before you said it, because I think sometimes there's this idea of, you know, just be positive. And I always think, yeah, but it's really difficult to tell someone who's living in abject poverty or horrible situations. Yeah. But Viktor Frankl was able to do that in a concentration camp. Yeah. Um, so attitude goes a long way. Um But what I wanted to actually comment on other than that was one of the virtues is loving life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you wrote that instead of loving life, we often find ourselves afraid of life and afraid of actually living a life attuned to our true nature. And it seems to me that that is so much at the heart of what we see happening is mm. so few of us actually are living kind of authentic lives and that we are kind of afraid of our lives. Uh, you know, my favorite movie has it as, you know, people are backing away from their lives. Mm. You know? And it seems like what is being suggested here is that we need to reach out and to actually embrace living. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, I, I think part of it is, Part of it is sort of just a maturation process. You know, I think inevitably for most people, they become more comfortable with themselves as they age and they and they and they go through life. But it's not automatic, of course, because, you know, people can sort of stagnate and, you know, peak in high school, that kind of a thing. And they're always looking back to their glory days or what have you. And, you know, they're not they're not even very present in their own lives. (laughs) And unfortunately, with, you know, with all the benefits of the internet and social media and all these sorts of things, we can sort of feel virtually present when we aren't even present to those around us. And it's, yeah, it's an easy trap to fall into, especially if, you know, the people around you are often doing their own thing. You're like, well, okay, I guess I'll do my own thing too. But, but yeah, we, I mean, as, as we grow, when we're young, you know, we feel timid or anxiety or shyness or all these sorts of things and just can be afraid to just put ourselves out there, you know, and just let people sort of see the real, real us as it were, and just be ourselves. But I mean, that's, that's really the only way you can live. If we, if we look at nature, if we look at the broader scope of life, I mean, we, I think what we often like so much about nature is we, we look out 
trees are just being trees animals are just being animals doing their thing the squirrels are just being squirrels they're you know that they don't have any of that sort of self-consciousness or shyness or or you know artifice or any of these sorts of things they're just being themselves and I think that's it's probably something we like a lot about pets too is that they're just there being themselves and you know totally accepting totally comfortable and if we can you know if we can kind of tap into that I it just makes life so much more enjoyable and and easier and more flowing all those good things so yeah be authentic be yourself what do they like to say in San Francisco let your freak flag fly there you um, go <laughs> <laughs> well it also you know it comes to what comes to mind is something that Joseph Campbell once said uh, I kind of quote this very frequently uh, and it was in his interview with uh, Bill Moyers where Moyers asked him about the meaning of life and Campbell's like yeah there isn't any he's like well, you know what's the meaning of this cup you know what's the meaning of that there isn't any there's nothing inherent he said that what people are looking for isn't necessarily meaning but they're looking to be present in their own lives mm -hmm. to have that sense of experience of truly living allowing that to flow through you you know yeah and so is that the Tao? yeah i think so in in a sense that yeah the idea of kind of nourishing life i kind of look at it like if you if you think about life in a kind of like capital l life yeah you know as as just the universe and all this all this around us that's doing what it's doing and just keeps doing what it's doing and keeps flourishing and growing and evolving and <laughs> all of that like we we are you know we're each embodying that to a greater or lesser extent hopefully to a greater extent but yeah that individual flourishing i think is really what we're looking for and i mean you can think of it in very sort of mundane straightforward terms like lifelong learning and and things like that right like as long as we are growing and expanding whether it's just mentally or or however we're continuing to flourish even if we're we're aging and of course we're aging and we're you know we may be on the the way out um but our life doesn't have to feel that way you know it's like once you you hit a certain age after your you know 40s 50s whatever where you know you can see the people you grew up with who maybe you're the same age as and some of them maybe look 10 years younger than you. Some of them maybe look 10 years older than you or 20 or what have you. You know, you can kind of see as you age who is sort of still flourishing, who is still living, growing, expanding, and who is kind of like kind of curled up in a ball a little bit and, and this kind of like kind of given up a little bit and, and, and aren't continuing to expand and and nourish themselves in their own life and their own expression of being and all that. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that I've always connected the Tao with is nature. Mm -hmm. And you've mentioned nature several times. And that was one of my focuses was trying to identify virtues that would help us better in our relationship with the natural world. But I'm curious is, you know, that connection between nature and the Tao 
correct, and then the follow-up question of that is, then can nature teach us some of these virtues? Yeah, definitely. I think so. Um, one of the, there's a, you know, pretty well-known passage from the Tao Te Ching that's like, you know, man follows the earth, the earth follows heaven, heaven follows the Tao, and the Tao follows or patterns itself on on what is or or there's a term there's a term actually it's used to mean nature now in modern chinese zuran is is nature but it's also you know spontaneity or naturalness or so of itself sometimes it's translated that way or i i like to sometimes say just reality as it is it's like the universe everything in the universe as far as we can tell is just like spontaneously doing its thing right it's just life is just coming out of nothingness and just growing and and that sort of spontaneity so yeah we can definitely learn from nature in so many ways as far as like ideas like biomimicry right like even if we're doing things with technology we can learn from the most efficient creative systems out there that already exist there's no you know we don't have to re, uh, reinvent the wheel kind of a thing right yeah. and especially dealing with climate change it's like okay this system has kind of kept itself in check and kept itself functioning for you know long before we were on the scene and why not work with this system that's self-regulating and and instead of trying to fight it, overcome it, whatever, if we realize that what we're doing is is throwing things out of whack, well, obviously we should, you know, change what we're doing. And, you know, I think of things like solar power and stuff. Obviously, we haven't kind of hit that ideal spot where, you know, the materials we're using, sometimes there's issues with and stuff like that. But obviously something like solar power where the sun is just throwing energy at us constantly and if we're not using it it's it's still there we might as well be using it versus hey let's go dig up this stuff that's really hard to extract and and expensive and and damaging ecosystems and and causes all these you know unintended consequences and stuff it's just that sort of practicality, I guess, that I look at and say, you know, why it makes no sense. Why, why do this when this is available, right? Other than, of course, you know, money and greed and all those good things. But <laughs> yeah, well, it seems like one of the things that we have to do is in connection with all this is identify what really is human nature, you know, because yeah. you were talking about, you know, like the, the house cat just being the house cat. You know, they just are, they embody that and squirrels are just squirrels. And I think one of the questions that we have to ask is, well, what does it mean just to be a human? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, that's, that's what we're all after. And that's what all of these traditions are kind of trying to get at. And that as long as they are traditions that are encouraging that self-inquiry, in, inquiry, that's always a good one for me. And that self-examination that, you know, then I think we tend to come to similar understandings. You know, we're here to experience life and to love and be loved and, you know, flourish along with the rest of life, you know, 
we're not here to, you know, have wars and, and kill or be killed. And I mean, nature isn't even really that way. It, you know, we had, I think we had this kind of simplistic, weird understanding of evolution at one point of like the whole nature is red and tooth and claw kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, it doesn't really work that way. And, and, and I think humans advantage as a species has always been cooperation mm -hmm. that, I mean, if it were kill or be killed, we, we, we never would have come anywhere near where we have as far as, you know, any anything good we have in life has been through cooperation, right? Mm -hmm. Societies being able to go from, you know, if if it were still village against village, you know, we'd we'd all be living in little walled cities, and you know, my suburb would be like trying to trying to you know raid your suburb and burn you out and take all your stuff. And I mean, you know, we're we're so beyond that. Even when we look around, we see all these crazy wars and and things you know in the grand scheme of things we're we're getting there yeah. <laughs> hopefully well yeah there there is a misconception about evolution that it is you know survival of the fittest and you're absolutely yeah. right even darwin commented on cooperation how necessary that is one of the things that i think is going on is this idea an idea of you know connecting it back to what it means to be human that there are these ideas of what it means to be human mm -hmm. and with what you were talking about in terms of evolution and being this struggle to survive that has an image of humanity i think at the core as being kind of rotten that we aren't inherently good, that we're inherently kind of selfish because we have to be in order to survive. Mm -hmm. And my understanding, though, is that in not all of Chinese thought or you know, Taoist thought, but that there is often a very different idea of the human, that mm -hmm. we are actually inherently good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly in Taoism, that's the case. And in some versions of Confucianism, like Mencius is very much very positive in that regard. There are were other schools of thought that were much more negative, like that human nature is inherently bad and has to be controlled and, and more like what, yeah, some, some sort of Western views of, of human nature have been in the past into more kind of more legalism and uh, yeah, more the stricter laws, the more punitive measures, all those sorts of things, because, you know, people are horrible and terrible. We got to beat them into submission kind of thing. Yeah. But yeah, for the most part, Taoism views human nature uh, in a much more positive light, like that we are originally inherently innately good and, you know, just like the rest of the world, everything nature and nature is inherently good. And it's when we get deluded and confused and all of that, that, that we, we start to have problems and start to get into conflict and, and all these things. Yeah. Yeah. But we have the opportunity to improve. Yeah, for sure. So I only have a couple more questions for you, but one is 
there's this, and I don't know if there's an answer to this. I'm, I'm still kind of comparing with sort of Aristotelian virtue here that is there a virtue that would be seen as one of the most important ones? Because in for Aristotle, it was phronesis in the Greek, you know, which is practical wisdom, that you mm -hmm. had to have that practical wisdom because virtues are contextual to think about, well, what is the virtuous behavior? So mm -hmm. is there a virtue, I guess, uh, one way of asking this, is there a virtue in Taoism that is primary where the others then follow? Yeah, in one sense, it would be coming back to those those first three from the Tao Te Ching. And of course, there are later formulations of that as well. Of course, there's more than those three in the Tao Te Ching. You can find any number of them. There are several sort of lists that have been extrapolated out of that as some of the early precepts and practices. And a lot of them are, you know, a lot of them are reflections of nature as far as like like water, the way water behaves is a big one, right? In Taoist uh, writings, emulating water and, you know, and its flexibility and softness and adaptability and all those sorts of things. And so, you know, moment to moment in any situation, adaptability is great, of course. But yeah, at its core, I think it's it's those those, you know, compassion and frugality and humility. And I like the way they're formulated in Tao Te Ching because another way of looking at it is the nourishing life idea, that caring for life. Compassion in Chinese, the characters have to do with the way that parents care for children or a mother would care for a child. And so when we feel that sort of loving and caring for ourselves, for those around us, for the natural world, I mean, that kind of could take care of everything, you know, to a certain extent. If we value life that much to want it to flourish, to want everybody to flourish, you know, that's kind of like the highest good right there. Yeah. Yeah. Final question. I'm just kind of curious. You serve as a nature and forest therapy guide. Do yeah. you bring in these teachings to that? You know, I haven't too much so far, but I've been looking to more and more. I've kind of, I was kind of in a process of, of sort of integrating the ideas for myself. It's like I, <clears throat> when I, when I began studying forest therapy, I think I intuitively felt like, oh, these things really mesh, you know, there's so much overlap here and so much in common. And I, and it took me a while to kind of articulate it for myself to where I felt comfortable sort of articulating it for others. And so, yeah, I think more and more that will be part of the way I do things. I actually wrote a paper on that that's coming out next year or sometime soon, January, I think, Journal of Taoist Studies. I've, I've written a paper that's about Taoist forest bathing. And it 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 basically is is looking at where's the overlap, where's the commonality in these two modalities and systems and and where do they jibe. And yeah, so I think going forward I'll I'll probably do a lot more of that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Just kind of curious because it seems so uh, there is a connection, I think. I think there's a deep connection. Um, and it kind of goes back in my mind to that idea that nature can teach us these virtues. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
So you've got this article coming out in January. What else are you working on? What else am I working on? I I have started working on another book. We'll see if it comes to fruition or if often I'll start a writing project and then maybe it doesn't really go anywhere and something else comes in and I'm like, oh, well, this is actually what's what's uh, working now or what's flowing now. So we'll see. <laughs> it, it might be it might be a year or two before it, it would come out anyway, but um, it might be a similar sort of book to this one. Um, if I stay on this track or I, I may go in a whole nother direction. Every once in a while, uh, the nature calls me back and I'll, you know, I actually, when I wrote this book, I was intending to write a completely different book, but it didn't really go anywhere. And this one really spoke to me. So I, this is what, this is what happened. So, yeah, well, it's a good book. There's a lot of wisdom in it and people should savor it and read it slowly, not do it like I did in a matter of two days <laughs> very quickly, but something that I would like to go back and reread and kind of think about, um, uh, think deeper. About. So is there a place where people can go to find out more about you or a website, social media? Yeah. My website is easy. It's just Gregory or yeah, it is uh, Gregory Ripley.com. Most or all of my socials are pretty much the same. I think too. Gregory Ripley. Yeah. Okay. You know, at Gregory Ripley for, Oh, uh, Instagram and all those things now, threads and <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> all that yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's all pretty much the same. Yeah, and the book is out in the US. It's out already. It came out on the 5th. I think in Europe and the UK, I think it's maybe coming out in early January. But yeah, it's out there in paperback, ebook. There's an audio book as well. So however you like to take in your books, you can, <laughs> you, yeah. can you can have at it. Yeah, it's a good book. I do highly, highly recommend it. And it's, there's a lot of value. Uh, I think it's much needed because we do need. I appreciate that. We need the virtues, you know? Yeah. We need to be better. We need to be better. Um, so thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Appreciated the conversation. All apologies for being a little long-winded at times, but uh, I will, when this publishes, I'll make sure to put links to your website and the book in the show notes in the video description. So thank you. Oh yeah. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. It's been fun. And that's a wrap on episode 120 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you're a part of my YouTube audience. Now, you know what's coming next. All the usual, sign up for my Patreon, share this with friends, family, co-workers, share it on social media, subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to or view podcasts. You know the drill. But here's the thing. All of that is really important. Putting this podcast together takes a lot of time and effort. Right now, I put in probably 15 to 20 hours per episode. And it's just a labor of love. I'm in the process of making changes to improve the podcast and the YouTube channel, but it's slow going. But your support will help me speed up the process and ensure that I can continue with the podcast and offer much more content than what I provide now. As I always like to say, I'm here in the front range now doing missionary work in regards to religion, spirituality, and ecology psychedelics and consciousness, and how all of this can help us heal humanity's relationship with the sacred earth. So if you feel moved by the rebel spirit, you know, I sure hope that you do. 
then please, by all means, help me in my efforts to share the good news. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to, or watching, Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit. <laughs>